welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Kay, and I use pronouns like she and her. And I'm Pastor Emily, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I am Pastor Beth, and my pronouns are she, her. In this episode, we'll discuss the 22nd Sunday after Pentecost, also known as Lectionary 30, or Proper 25, which this year falls on October 24th. We have one content notification for you for this episode. We talk about ableism and examples of it in our deep dive on disability and consent. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. Today for our deep dive, we are excited to have Reverend Beth Wartick, who is the pastor of Resurrection Lutheran Church in Ankeny, Iowa. Beth loves many nerdy things, and she also was born with one arm. Welcome, Beth. Thanks. It's good it's to, good have to be you. with you. Yes. Before we really dive in, one of the things that has happened and continues within disability communities is an evolution in language. So this is actually happening everywhere in every language all the time. And I'm most familiar with the evolution of language as it relates specifically to the queer communities, but in particular, the ways we that we have talked in English about disabilities and people have evolved. So I wonder, Beth, if you could explain a little bit of that evolution or change for us, especially thinking about like person first language. Yeah, so I don't have like a timeline background that I could say like, this is the year when this changed or this is that. But you know, broadly speaking, for a lot of the way in, in history that we've talked about people with disabilities, we haven't talked about people with disabilities. We've talked about disabled people. And we've talked specifically uh, in this kind of like disability first language or sometimes disability exclusive, right? So we talk about or would have historically mm-hmm. talked about like, oh, well, there's there's that cripple, right? Or there's there's the blind or the deaf. Broadly speaking, we don't do that, right? We had <laughs> this this development, this sense that it's really not appropriate to simply describe someone or define someone as what they're perceived as as lacking or missing in in the way that that disability language was used, right? And so we mm-hmm. we shifted culturally um, and linguistically toward what what you called Emily that person first language, right? And so mm-hmm. kind of following this format of, you know, a person with whatever the descriptor is, right? You instead of saying, oh, that is a wheelchair user, you might say, oh, that is a person who uses a wheelchair, right? This centering of the person, and then there's these other descriptors that go after that, right? So I don't generally refer to myself as a one-armed person, right? I will refer to myself as a person who has one arm, a person who was born with one arm. You know, words like amputee can be helpful. I find that sort of less helpful because I was born with one arm. And so I didn't experience amputation. But there are people for whom that is a really helpful word that catches up their experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now when I engage with different people with disabilities, there's kind of a range of the way that people choose and prefer to be referred to. Um, So particularly, one example that that I've seen is that with autism, I mostly hear people talk about saying, I'm an autistic person. Um, I I personally am not, right? But that's what I'll hear people say. 
versus a person with autism. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a community there that has said largely, right. This is the way we want to refer to ourselves. And so it it just, Mm -hmm. you know, is a place to engage with people, right. To say like, if you want me to describe you with regard to this particular ability or disability, how do you want me to do that? And most people can tell you, right. Please don't use this word. Please do use this word. Right. Yeah. I think about that too with, because I've heard some people who are very clear about person first language, right? A person with this disability or a person who uses this assistive device. Um, But I also have heard other people who very clearly say, I am a disabled person. I am a wheelchair user. And so it's, it's the, that complexity. And I think it's still so new for a lot of us who don't have really clear disabilities or acknowledged disabilities, right? I think all three of us in some capacity do because Kay and I both have glasses, right? It's just that wearing corrective lenses has become so common that that particular area of disability and accessibility like doesn't count unless you're to the point of being legally blind. And I think that's one of the cool things about disability like law actually, right, is the way in which it becomes about accessibility for lots of people, right? So ramps, it turns out, are great news for everybody because it's easier to walk up a ramp than it is to walk upstairs. And it's much easier to take wheels up a ramp, whatever those wheels might be, than it is to take wheels upstairs. Mm -hmm. And I I think that that's really cool that the more we lean into accessibility, the more everybody gets to be participants. Yeah. And in some ways, it sounds like using the language that a person acknowledges for themselves or or says is correct for themselves, that sounds like using the correct pronouns for somebody. It's not that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are a lot of overlaps and connections and partly, right, there are a lot of queer people who are also part of the disability communities and vice versa. But also, there is a lot of overlap in this, like, who are we centering and then what impact does that have larger, right? When we center someone who uses a wheelchair, when it comes to changing levels by building a ramp, we're centering them and it has ripple benefits for other people. Right. And I think about that in any, in terms of anything, right? When we center black women, when we're talking about racism, it will have ripple effects. When we center, we had this conversation when I was, a chaplain at the hospital when we were talking about pastoral care among African-Americans, right? When the things that were said could have ripple effects, like those would be beneficial to people of a variety of races. But the point was like centering the people who are most harmed or marginalized and then letting it spread versus trying to work our way into them. Sure. So our first reading talks a bit about people with disabilities and mobility issues like pregnancy uh, traveling with large crowds. And I would have to imagine that traveling while disabled and especially traveling in large groups of people would present unique issues and situations. Yes, always. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I just think about so I, I have a right hand. I do not have a left hand. I don't know when the last time was that you went through a drive through but in the United States, we sit in the left side of our vehicle oh and yeah. we drive on the right side of the, of, you know, the roads and whatever. When we go through a drive through window, it's the left side that, that we like engage with, right? Which 
just means that you have to be able to reach through the left side of your window, right? And depending on the size of the car that I'm driving, whether it's exactly the right height that I can reach really easily or not. Yeah. You know, and like... Sure. And how close you are to yes. the window. Yeah. And- yeah. So there's a ton, right? Just in this, like, what is basically an everyday thing, you know, not that I'm going to drive through every single day, but like, right, that that's, that's a piece of what it is to Common. be yeah. like in American... 21st century especially during the pandemic like you're not gonna drive in and sit yeah and so you know other things like I'm great as a person sitting next to you on an airplane because I'm only gonna fight for one armrest (laughs) right like this is a gift that I offer to the person on my left and uh you know just there there are ways in which I don't know, like the world, the world assumes everybody has two arms, right? And so sometimes there's advantages to Mm -hmm. having only one arm, but largely like there's just some creativity that, that goes into figuring out like, how how do I move in this space? And yeah, several years ago, I was on a group trip with a group of other pastors for a continuing education thing. And we were traveling in this Mm -hmm. big public space and there was a group of children like wandering behind us and I pointed it out to my colleagues I said those kids are following us because they're staring at me because I have one hand and my colleagues were like no way (laughs) I was like no no this this is a thing that happens to me in public spaces right small children stare and point and so yeah you know just the ways in which we have sort of a standard expectation for who gets to be in public spaces and then when there's a visible change right whether whether the person who shows up is a person with a disability or a person of color or you know people who don't appear to be like opposite gender couples holding hands or like whatever the standard is for who gets to be in public spaces then people who break that standard draw attention just by being and Mm -hmm. i i don't know how much that happened for this story that we're gonna see in scripture later but it sure happens in my life yeah yeah How do you handle that, especially with kids, right? Because I think there's a certain extent to which kids are just curious. And if they haven't seen someone with one arm. Yeah. So one of my favorite things about children is that no one has taught them to be tactful. So (laughs) tact can be a beautiful thing. But often, in my experience, what tact is, is like, this sort of like middle class American version of like not inadvertently saying anything too personal. Right. And Mm -hmm. so kids love to ask questions. Right. So I'll get kids, you know, who come up and they're like, what happened to you? Right. Um, One, one time this was at an airport. I was standing in line because there'd been bad weather. And so there were three flights of people trying to get onto one airplane. We're all making our case for why we should get a And so there's this little girl in line behind me. She's probably eight or nine years old. And she's staring at me. And I'm just wondering, like, not if, but when she's going to ask me what's going on. And finally, she, like, works up this courage. She says, what happened to your arm? I said, well, uh, I was born with one arm. And we're standing in line, right? We're not going anywhere. And so Mm -hmm. I sort of continue. I was born with one arm. You know, this is just our our bodies are different. This is how God made me. I have one arm. Um, I think she had red hair. And so I pointed out something like she had red hair and I had blonde hair. And But she she received this information and she was clearly thinking it through. And so I'm just waiting. Like, I don't know what's going to happen next. Because this is the point where the conversation diverges. 
Yeah. That's um, my favorite. I love when kids, like, take it in and don't respond, and then, like, depending on how long you have, sometimes it's, like, five minutes later, and they will, like, yeah. say Yeah, so this is, this is probably, like, 30 seconds. It felt longer, right? But she just, she finds, she just looks at me, she says, well, then what's God doing with your other hand? <laughs> right? Reasonable just, question. It's always stuck with me. This has been, like, I don't know, oh 12 gosh. or 15 years ago now. But, like, both, you know, there's this piece of it that makes me really sad right she's got this idea that like everyone must have two hands and so if there's something like that like what was god thinking right but there's other Mm -hmm. piece of this that feels like i don't know opportunity or there's something Mm -hmm. in like well what what is god doing right like that that there might be space Mm -hmm. that god is working in disability and so i love john nine for that reason like that story of that story of a man born blind. But, you know, we we often see disability um, or other kinds of difference as a liability, as a handicap, perhaps. But mm-hmm. I, I think there's some really great space for us to think about disability and, and all the difference in our world as not a liability, but as, as a strength and as something that we can gain from or that we do gain from, mm-hmm. whether we try to or yeah. not. I think you said that recently you got to preach on why God tells us that people with one hand are more awesome than people with two. It's true. Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, that was just a couple weeks ago. A couple ago. weeks ago, we had Mark. Uh, had Jesus course. says to everybody, you know, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better to enter life... I forget how he puts it. It's better to enter life maimed, I think he says, than to be cast into the fire yeah. hole, right, with two hands. And I was making a point about the dangers of proof texting, right? Because I can look at that and I can say <laughs> very clearly that people with one hand get to enter life and people with two hands are at risk of eternal fire. So, like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think the closest I get to difficulty of travel, while slightly uh, unusual, I suppose, is that I keep finding myself in having to take showers in bathrooms that are not set up for people with glasses because... I don't actually enjoy traveling when I have to take showers in, let's be honest, crappy bathrooms. But that does seem to keep happening to me anyway. And it will be fairly often that I will find myself needing to take a shower in a space that has lots of hooks. I can hang things up, but no shelves that I could say put my glasses on. And so if I don't happen to have something to hang up that doesn't also have a pocket in it that I could put my glasses in, I'm kind of (laughs) screwed. Because I can't find my way to the shower without my glasses. I will, like, fall off a cliff or something. And uh, also, the glasses getting uh, water all over them means I can't see either. So the number of people who haven't thought that through stuns me. And I always wind up leaving notes at these places about, please, for the love of God, just get yourself a cheapo, sticky shelf at Walmart and put it in the shower so that people can put their glasses (laughs) there. But I have to imagine that it gets more complicated with other issues. I haven't thought of that because I have glasses as well, but I have a pretty mild prescription. And so for the most part, I like I can walk around the house without glasses on and there's a little bit of blurriness, but not bad. But the other place where I think for me as a non-binary person that intersects really significantly with people who are disabled in travel is bathrooms that there are a lot of bathrooms that are particularly gendered in a certain way, 
but also even the accessible stalls are not always that accessible. And if someone is disabled and has someone who is a support person who is a different gender than them, there's not a way to go to the bathroom unless there's a single-use bathroom. And airports have started doing, like, family bathrooms now, and it's always, like, an awkward thing for me as a person by myself to go into a bathroom labeled family. But the only other options are to misgender myself by going into the bathroom, which has, like, a whole other level of repercussions. And so that that push to say single-use, gender-neutral bathrooms or all-gender bathrooms are important is huge. And there's, like, actually apps that are specifically designed and do both gender and accessibility. And, like, you can mark, there's a restroom here that is accessible and all-gender or... The problem I have with airports is you can go through security and there's the like weird body scan machine thing. Um, And it freaks out because it has, this is how a body should be shaped, right? Two legs, two arms, a head. Right. And every single time, like the person on the other, like it like flags, right? There's a problem here, you know? And obviously the person sitting there can look at me and say, ah, yes, this person has one arm. This is the reason that it is, you know, but that often triggers mm-hmm. like a, we're going to need to do like a follow up, you know, security thing. Full body. So, yeah. I was wondering about that when we were talking about travel the first time when you were talking about being in lines for air travel. I was like, I actually wonder. I Sometimes I get boosted into the like fast travel lane also with like a frequency that doesn't seem consistent with just like we're pulling random people. Like someone decided that because I'm a person with one arm that I like deserve to go through the fast lane. I'm not mad about that. The fast lane's <laughs> great. Yeah. Yeah. That is a whole other You know, come to think of it, I've never tried to go through the airport while wearing a clergy collar and now all of a sudden I'm tempted. But I did once because we were going when I was in seminary we were going to a conference, like a mission developer type conference in Texas. And it was right, it was the day of assignment. And so, right, like, terrible timing, ELCA, terrible timing, but okay. We had our, like, worship service and stuff. And I think I had maybe, like, I was either doing something in worship or I had preached that day or something, but I didn't have time to, like, go back and change my collar. And it was back when they were still doing the, like, tap on the iPad and it'll tell you if you get, like, fancy first or not. And so we were going through and Alex Raby, who is a past guest on this podcast, went first and got tapped into regular. And then I went and got tapped into quick. And then Alex, who at that point was more of an expert traveler than me, was like, oh, I'm with them. Can we just all go together? And so we all went in the fast track. And that was an iPad. So like, probably not because I was wearing a collar. But it is weird. The like spaces that collars way that clergy callers impact yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and when it comes to ableism there is a lot that those of us who aren't disabled and even many of us who are can do to cause harm and I think kind of we've talked a little bit about this that that's like the navigating of tact or not tact and what language we use but one of the things that I read a lot on Twitter from wheelchair users is the harm that is caused when people try to help someone in a wheelchair without their consent. So they will just like 
grab the back of the wheelchair and move them, or a lot of people when having it when there are encounters with police, the police or the airlines both frequently wreck people's wheelchairs. Yeah. So I guess I'm curious how you think about and navigate consent in your life and with others around you. Yeah. So my my experience is largely around people assuming that I need help with things, with moving things, with like just doing stuff. So I remember like even in elementary school in art class, there was an assignment that we were supposed to like rip paper to make like a collage or something. And my teacher just handed me a pair of scissors, sort of, I think on the assumption that I was going to struggle to rip the paper into pieces that I could then collage. And so they're all like up on display in the hallway and there's everybody else is ripped and my scissors, you know, and I don't remember the, the mm-hmm. process of making the art, but I do remember the visual of, of the art up on the wall. And I remember my mom being really angry about it, you know, that someone had just decided that I needed this help. And it's a tricky space because there are many things that are difficult to do with one hand, particularly as we talk about getting in and out of spaces. You know, it takes a hand to operate a door, typically, right? Especially if there's not a Mm -hmm. button available, you know, and if there is a button available to automatically open or close a door, it depends on the height of like, right, where is that button? Or is it right next to the door? Is it only like two inches wide? I don't know who designs those buttons. But, um, you know, um, so there are absolutely times when I need help. And I need help differently as a person with one hand than a person with two hands might need help, you know, just getting like holding things when I'm trying to open or close a door. And so it's interesting to me to see like, there will be people who assume that I need help with everything. Right. And this is an intersection piece because I often experience it, particularly with men. Right. That like if I try to carry mm-hmm. something, oh, yeah. um, a man will come and carry it for me. And mm-hmm. and by that, you mean they will take it sometimes. Away from you? Yes. Or they'll be like, oh, I could have done that for you, um, especially at church. Right. Pastor, I could have moved that table. Well, yeah, obviously you could have moved the table. But I was standing around not moving things and you were already moving things. So I just moved the table. Yeah. You know, and so the ways in which those things intersect and the ways in which like I recognize in myself, like, I don't, you know, like I'm a strong woman. I can do what I want. You know, like (laughs) there might be times when I say no to help that I really could use because like I want to make a point. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't do that. Maybe you're more mature in your emotional response to people. I definitely (laughs) always do that. Always. I I may resemble that remark a bit myself. But then there's other funny times. Like I I remember once, so I have two kids and about four years ago, I was at a a meeting at my synod office with um, my bishop and several other pastors. And I had my baby along because she was small and portable and she needed to be with me. Mm Mm-hmm. And I made a comment to the the bishop and the other staff there that, you know, the, the building doesn't have automatic doors. It has these big, heavy doors. And it would be really nice to have automatic doors to get in and out. At which one of the other pastors piped up like, yeah, isn't it so hard to like move around with a baby? And I said, yeah, that, but also I have one hand, you know, and so... <laughs> Yes, and. Um, you know, there there are ways in which these these things cross over, right? You know, that mm-hmm. 
people will always say to me about being a parent, like, wow, you must have your hands full. And I always like in the back of my head, I'm like, (laughs) hand, but also like, I just wonder like the ways in which we sort of assume what people can do or accomplish Mm. connects with hands. Sure. I have like a whole spiel about the ELCA motto with its God's work, our hands business that, you know, mm-hmm. might be too much for this podcast. So I could go for a while. Oh, it's not too much this for this podcast, but yeah. You know, just like the, the ways this is getting away from the consent piece. Right. But like, it's not hard to ask someone, can I help you with that? Right. You know, can I get mm-hmm. the door? Would you like me to move the other side of this table? You know, like, and I may have just realized that there would be one particular way of asking you that that might lead to some. Added can I lend you a hand? Because for of people, instance, yes. yes. Or can I give right. you a hand? Yeah. Yeah. No, I get a lot of mileage out of making fun of. Well, not making fun of. Back up. I get a lot of mileage out of maybe a little making. Yeah, fun I of. give I give people a hard time when they brag about doing things single handedly. And I just do everything (laughs) single-handedly, which is, like, probably a commentary on my uh, personality as much as a commentary on the number of hands I have. Um. That is brilliant. brilliant. But, yeah, I mean, there, there are people whom I feel better about asking for help than others because I know that they don't assume that I'm struggling and need help, right? You know, and mm-hmm. other people probably experience this too, right? There are people you trust to ask for help because you have a relationship. And there are people that you're like, I don't ever want to ask them for help because they're going to take it as a sign of my weakness. Oh, yeah. 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 I do want to revisit, and you can maybe talk about this more broadly if you want, but the particular phrasing, partly because all three of us are pastors in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. But this is not the only place that it happens. And I've had different conversations with different able-bodied people about when it's okay to use language that excludes people. But that, like, sounds weird. But, like, to use language like God's work are hands. Or, and I think there's, there's there's a bit of a difference, maybe, and some nuance of, like, if you're using it, like, that person was tone deaf or blind to the fact, then that's clearly like painting it in a negative light. And I would say that's not okay, really ever. But like those spaces where it's an example or God in your mercy, hear our prayer, which is actually hard for me to say because I did not do ours well when I was a kid. But also, does God need to hear in order to receive our prayers? So I'm curious about your thoughts on that, particularly because you brought up God's work, our hands. Yeah. So I, I'm going to go from the end of your comment back to the beginning. Like I have encountered places where people and congregations have moved from Lord in your mercy, hear our prayers to receive our prayers. I really like that mm-hmm. language. Oh, yeah. And then to the, to the God's work, our hands piece. I, I think what I hear that or experience that as communicating, trying to communicate is that we have some responsibility to be active in our communities, doing the things that God calls us to do. And I am 100% on board with that, right? Mm-hmm. Sounds like vocation to me. Sure. The, the God's work, our hands piece has always thrown me because I think that a great deal of the work that we are called to isn't done with hands at all. 
right? We listen to each other. Mm-hmm. We we speak. We use our feet to show up in the places that we need to show up. You know, like whatever. Like it's it's a it's a whole body experience. But the other piece for me personally is I'm always like, do you need multiple hands to do God's work? Can I only do half of God's work? Like what you know, mm-hmm. or do I have to have other people with me to do God's work? Which I think that actually is true, mm-hmm. right? But it's not because I have yeah. one hand that I need other people with me to do God's work. It's because yeah. God calls us to be the body of Christ. And uh, Now I'm wondering yeah, what so, other body parts we could replace the hands with. God's work, our spleens? You know, honestly, see, not I would everybody just has love spleen. to see a bunch yeah, of them, exactly. right? God's work, our hands. God's work, our ears. God's work, our eye. God's work, our... I don't like. Mm, I'm not sure what our appendix yeah. is. C's, amygdala appendices append oh, not, appendices yeah whatever that i'm not sure if god's work is done through an <laughs> appendix but perhaps it is yeah god's work our pineal glands right our lymph nodes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually one of the things our eyebrows i think my eyebrows do a lot of god's work actually <laughs> i do think and that that's lifting. yeah that's one of the things though that goes in with like the space of right the acknowledgement that no one place or situation can be a hundred percent accessible for a hundred percent of the people a hundred percent of the time right like there are accessibility needs that actually like are in conflict with each other right yeah i hear that with like volume and lighting particularly for things right there are people for whom Mm -hmm. a really well-lit space is necessary and there are people for whom a really well-lit space is like headache inducing you know mm-hmm. or, or the yeah. amount of volume that they can need or not need to have from a sound system like yeah so, and that's yeah. where I think like variety in how we make spaces ex- accessible is helpful and we've done this to varying degrees of success during the pandemic right to make virtual to make all things virtual or to make some things virtual or to do to try and figure out hybrid options a lot of congregations and worshiping communities have done hybrid options. They generally tend to just be, we will live stream the service, which is not actually hybrid. The congregation that I just left is actually in the process of figuring out how do we actually do hybrid? Because our prayers of the people are essential to who we are as a congregation. And we need people who are online to be able to participate in that. But then like, I think also it's to have more variety. And so that's what you were saying of like, it's not necessarily that the ELCA should stop doing God's work our hands, but to add the different things because the chances of someone having no eyes, no hands, no heart, no feet, no shoulders, no pineal glands, vocal cords. no vocal cords, like none of that stuff is actually like impossible because if you don't have a heart, like you, you can't live. But right, but then you cover enough that everybody finds a place and a way that they belong within it. And I think that, yeah, that just seems like a brilliant. Well, and we have, we have 1 Corinthians 12, right? We have this language in the Mm -hmm. Bible that says that we together are the body of Christ. And that if one body part says to another, another body part, you're not my favorite, I don't need you, right? Then we're, Mm -hmm. we are preventing the body of Christ from being the body of Christ, right? And so, you know, this this isn't saying, well, God's work, definitely not your feet, right? But there, it's easy <laughs> to get there from the, <laughs> if you don't mm-hmm. include that. Yeah. Some people's feet. 
Maybe not yours. <laughs> well, and but. the other piece, that reminds me of um, the, so one of the, like, catchphrases of Martin Luther that he may or may not have actually said, right, is, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. And um, Reconciling Works did a Queer I Stand shirt, and I have a friend who uses a wheelchair, and so I, when they first came out with the shirts, I emailed them and I said, can you also do a Queer Eye Roll shirt? And they have that now on their website that, like, awesome. they have, like, Queer Eye Roll and Here I Roll or whatever the, like, non-queer person equivalent is. But I love that, that, like, that give, and that gives, like, so much more meaning and possibility to that phrase and to how we engage Absolutely. with it. Absolutely. So I guess we already covered this a bit, but uh, in our gospel reading, Jesus doesn't assume that he knows what Bartimaeus wants and asks him before healing him at his requests. And does this reading strike a personal chord with you, Beth? Yeah, you know, I think about um, just what dignity it offers to a person Mm -hmm. for someone else, um, particularly a person in a position of power, right, which Jesus is certainly a person in a position of power, um, doesn't assume that he knows what this person wants or needs and asks him first and, and does it publicly ish, you know, like there's, there's a crowd around, right? There's, there's other people paying attention to this conversation. So even if it's happening sort of off to the side, right? Like everybody's dropping at least. You know, because there have been times in my life when, when people have simply assumed that they know what I want. Right. Um, um, when I was, a a kid, I wore a prosthetic arm for a piece of my like early childhood adolescence. And there were periods when I was like, I don't actually know if this is what I want. But I remember being six or seven years old and the doctor or other medical professional, you know, basically like pressuring me like, well, don't you just want to look like everybody else? Right? Like this is this is definitely what you want, what you need. You should have. Yeah, yikes. My mom was also real mad about that. Um, But yes, right. Um, yeah, you know, but the the ways in which powerful people or people who are perceived to have their lives together are invited to make decisions for other people, right? And Jesus mm-hmm. makes a point of not making the decision for Bartimaeus, and and Bartimaeus calls a lot of the shots here, right? Like he initiate, you know, he's just like yelling, mm-hmm. right? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Probably quoted that wrong, but you know, like and no, oh, yeah. And, and then he calls Jesus my teacher, right? Like he knows that he has this claim on Jesus or this relationship with Jesus. And through that, then Jesus gets to be Jesus as much by giving the guy agency and dignity as by healing him, mm-hmm. I yeah. think. Yeah. yeah, I think that's huge, especially like you said, because of the power and authority that Jesus has naturally and is given by the community. Right. I- and by Bartimaeus yeah. himself. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all experienced, like, adults assuming they know what children want and need, right? We've probably all experienced churches mm-hmm. assuming they know what their community wants and needs. Yeah. And yeah. that's not, that's yeah. not yeah. Jesus here. Our first reading for this episode is from Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 7 through 9. Jeremiah calls for celebration at the return of the full diversity of not only Judah, but also of the northern kingdom, referred to as Israel or Ephraim, from exile. So one of the themes for this passage is a return to the land, right? The people are returning to their land. And I was thinking about 
the Hunger Games, actually, at, at the end of Mockingjay, when Katniss is returning to District 12, which has been totally bombed out. This is, like, after, after. So not when she's at District 13, but, like, after the end in the epilogue, I think. And it's more clear as time goes by, but, like, at first the return is not what, like, it is still this bombed out buildings or shells, all of this stuff, and yet over time there start to be flowers and the the meadow that had become a mass grave become kind of gets covered in flowers and becomes a flowery place and becomes even a place where she goes with her kids spoilers right mm-hmm. and and where she thinks and she not in a way that erases what has happened but that's acknowledging and she's thinking about like I will have to tell you like you are going to ask because you are going to learn this in school and you will ask me and I will have to tell you what this history yeah. is and what this pain is. But right now, the like coming back is a bittersweet thing because there is a lot of grief there. I've been thinking about returns as well. Um, the congregation mm-hmm. where I serve in the pandemic, we came back to indoor worship in early and midsummer when things looked like that was mm-hmm. a good idea. And then we paused indoor worship with the Delta spike. I don't know very many congregations that did that, you know, were together and then stopped being together again. Mm-hmm. But that return has not been exactly what everybody thought it was going to be. And I think of the uh, the return of the king after they solve all of the Sauron problems, Ooh. right? Mm-hmm. The hobbits go back to the Shire and there's problems there, right? You know, yeah. this isn't in the movies, right? But in the books. Saruman mm-hmm. has gone and set up, um, sorry, not Saruman, Wormtongue, his underling, has gone and set up in the Shire. And mm. that return requires some rebuilding, right? The things that they learned on this real long journey still apply, right? And I think of our own returns, and I think of the Israelites going into exile when they return to the Promised Land, there's rebuilding and there's conflict. Not necessarily in Jeremiah, but in in the other prophets. And that's maybe a piece of what we have to expect, right? Is that there's going to be these, it's not a quick and easy return, but that there's work to do. That makes sense. That's our, the congregation I served was one of the last to do anything in person. And we did outdoor in person and then started having conversations about going back to Zoom all the time because of Iowa and Delta and the future variants that are just going to keep going yeah but it is like anytime we've had those conversations like it is almost impossible to convey to people the pain and the heartache that will happen when they return to in person and cannot hug each other and cannot sing together and it's yeah how do we how do we create the space for that rebuilding and when is it actually better to stay away rather than yeah I had forgotten about the Shire. I only read the books once. I've watched the movies a million times. but I It's honestly one of my favorite parts of the whole series because the hobbits get to come back and be who they became on the journey, right? Like that they, these yeah. skills and, mm-hmm. and, and things that they learned, not just the fighting, but like the leadership and the organizing, right? Like that, that, that affects yeah, sure. their home yeah. too. And their self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Versus like in the movies where everybody just like gives them weird looks because they're like have gone out of the Shire. Yeah. The, the yes, Shire but now needs... Sam can ask Rosie out. Yeah. The Shire needs them to mm-hmm. have gone away and mm-hmm. come back, yeah. actually. 
In verse 7 we read, With weeping they shall come, and with consolations I will lead them back. So I did not especially grow up uh, watching the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air while it was on the TV. Uh, I was not exactly into God-centered stories when it was on uh, um, at that age. But I have seen a few episodes. And a few years ago, I ran across a post online that was almost certainly on Tumblr at the time. Not that I would be able to find it again. that explained that there was this one scene where Will Smith's character grieves his separation from his dad and goes to his Uncle Phil for comfort, only that's Mm -hmm. not how the scene was originally supposed to go. The idea was that Will Smith was supposed to be proud and independent and loudly not care that his dad wasn't coming, Mm -hmm. only the scene's lead-up of talking about how his dad was supposed to be there and then wasn't had made Will the actor think about his lack of relationship with his own dad and he got unexpectedly emotional and james avery Mm -hmm. the actor playing uncle phil in that scene saw that realized what was going on and opened his arms to will who hugged him and it's a, a really lovely scene and they both break down crying and very touching and they left it in the show that way instead of going back and let's do the right version this time because it went so beautifully, despite the fact that it went completely against the script. <laughs> uh, that that was not who Will Smith's character was supposed to be, you know? But that's kind of what this verse makes me think of. God will lead us back with consolations. That may mean that we do have to weep. But. Yeah, I think that's actually verse 9. Just as a note, because that's what I used as well. Oh. Oh, hey, look, you're right. Yes, that is verse 9. Sorry. We just did the same. (laughs) We just Sometimes we do this where we pick the same verses. There's only three of them in this passage. Well, and I was... Also, we both have excellent taste. That's true. I was also looking at verse 9 and thinking about the... With weeping they shall come, and with consolations I will lead them back. But I focus more on the part right after that where it says, I will let them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. And my roommate recently got a Nintendo Switch. And so I've been playing a lot of Mario Kart. (laughs) And my immediate reaction was like, so not like a Mario Kart There are no straight paths. Yes. No, but actually, if you have mushrooms, the, like, little toy mushrooms in Mario, you can actually do a lot of the shortcuts do make a pretty straight line. I tend to not do anything straight. So you wouldn't want to go on those paths anyway. Yeah. 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 This is definitely not a Mario Kart race back. (laughs) But the consolations part also connects it with what you were saying, Beth, with the return of the king and that space for, for grief and... Consolation. Our second reading is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. Because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, Jesus' high priesthood is permanent, unlike humans, so that what Jesus does is done forever. So I was thinking about this, and one of the themes that stuck out to me, the like ongoing theme of Hebrews, which we've talked about multiple times in past episodes, is like, Jesus is the high priest. But the piece that stuck out more to me this time was the the set-apartness, which is part of what we mean when we say holy or sacred. Like The sense of it is that it is set apart for a particular purpose, for a particular thing. And 
So, of course, that made me think of the ways that the magical and non-magical worlds are set apart from each other for a variety of reasons, some of which are good and some of which are not, and some of which are protection and some of which are not in both Harry Potter and a bit to a bit of a lesser extent in Carry On by Rainbow Roll, which is a Harry Potter fan fiction that became its own book. Uh-huh. It's actually, like, pretty fun. I like Rainbow Roll. I like those books. But, yeah, that set apartness. That seems like a theme that is common in a lot of worlds where some people have magic and some people don't. I think of the Wheel of Time series. You know, there's like 13 or 14 giant books, but Amazon is making a TV series out of it, apparently. But, like, there are people of, among the, the Ace Sedai, the magic users, whose job it is to go and seek out other people who might possibly have that skill to take them to the tower so they can learn to use it appropriately and then be sent back out again. So there's this kind of like gathering, training, sending that, I mean, on some level, they don't always do it well, right? But yeah, there there are times when like we need to be brought together. We need to learn how to use the gifts we have and then we need to go back out and yeah. use them. Um, yeah. yeah. Or in the Young Wizards universe uh, by Diane Duane, magic exists and you learn to use your magic uh, generally when you're a child or a teenager but you learn to do that while you're still living the rest of your life and you just have to carve out time for it basically Uh, and magic sort of protects itself so that it's you'd have to really work at it to like get caught but you're also convinced uh, in your first adventure uh, called Your Ordeal, where you find out that you have magic in the first place, uh, of the importance and necessity of keeping it a secret. Mm. And it's an interesting, it's sort of like magic is a subset of the world or of the universe, really, but it still exists within the world. It is both in the world and of the world, but the world is not necessarily aware of it. Mm. Yeah, that actually reminds me of the Graceling universe, which I talk about a lot on this podcast, but I really love it. And there are people with graces who have like super, basically like superhuman powers at something and every grace is different. So there's one person who can like open his mouth as big as his head. That's his grace. (laughs) And yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And Katza is the main character and I love her and I'll talk more about the gracing realm was coming up a bunch in my preparation for this but that's in fire one of the companions to the original gracing book the dells where the story takes place have monsters and they're like vibrantly colored animals mostly Um, but there's also like humans that can be monsters but there's only one monster human left in the realm and any of the monsters actually like have this way that they like enchant humans and so then the humans will like do anything for them and go to the extreme of emotion so that either like absolutely infatuated with them or like despise them and actually threaten danger and harm and that's a like because they are not set apart from each other then the humans have to develop and strengthen their brains to be able to protect themselves from being enchanted by the monsters, which is fascinating because then that comes into play in other books in in that kind of series too. But that, like, if we're not setting things apart that maybe need to be set apart, then we have to still figure out boundaries 
for navigating life together. Yeah. In verse 23, we read, Furthermore, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. And now I'm imagining the concept of an undead priesthood and having to spend thousands <laughs> of years listening to people complain that little Timmy didn't dress up nicely enough for acolyting on Sunday. What are his parents teaching him? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure that there would also be lovely parts of it, too. But, like, if you're going to be stuck there for thousands of years, my automatic thought is what are the irritations and annoyances that you're going to be stuck with? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if it was the Adams family cousins, that might actually be fun. Like, irreverent, but fun. So Yeah. I also looked at that verse, and I was actually thinking much more grimly that Bitter Blue, it, which is another book in the Graceling series, as she's, like, turning 18, and her dad was a terrible psychopathic person, and his grace was that he could manipulate people's minds and tell lies, and people would believe them. Oh, yeah, and so then, like, as she's getting to the point where she's, like, 18 and can now, like, has been queen for eight years and all this stuff, she's starting to figure out that, like, things have not been addressed because people are just trying to move forward without actually letting all of the truth of his terribleness come to light. And she has, like, four advisors that were advisors for him and that are also his adv her advisors, and they are in fact prevented by death from continuing in office because they are trying to protect the secrets that they don't want shared because of their own shame, but then that also has repercussions for like their own actions, and so all but one of them ends up dying because of this harm that was eight years ago, right? Was decades, it was a couple, it was several decades of it, but the, the like ripples of it were that eventually, like, eventually they couldn't be her. She, like, she wanted them to keep being advisors while they could, but they could not. You know, I'm just here to make everything real sad. <laughs> and I, I think there are parallels to real life in that, too, but we don't necessarily have to explore those. Just <laughs> right. the number of people who would rather be dead than embarrassed come mm -hmm. to mind. But Or would rather not face the truth about the past. Yeah. I mean, critical race theory is important. <laughs> you know, listening to both of you talk, it makes me think about the ways in which death, you know, it, it sort of releases us from a lot of obligations, right? For good or for mm. bad, right? And so, you know, in Christian faith, there's a sense of, of death as, as loss, right? You know, that, that we have, but also the sense that like, now you're, you're not under the law or the obligations of it anymore either, you know? And so... Mm -hmm you know, to the point of the, like, dealing with people who are complaining about things, like, yeah, there's some liberty, right, in in knowing that there will come an <laughs> end. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Well, that's the good place. Spoilers for folks who have not seen it. The good place has this, where, like, they finally make it to the good place, and A, nobody has entered in a very, very long time because the world is too complex, and B, everyone who's there has just like lost all of their energy and personality because it is never ending. And so they introduce that this option to move on, whatever that might be. And that renews the life of the people. And all of a sudden the good place is like thriving again. And eventually people move on, but because there is an end, there's more space to cherish that time. I hadn't thought of it that way.
And our gospel reading for this episode is from Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. Bartimaeus, who is blind, calls out to Jesus in faith to be healed of his blindness, and declares that Jesus is the son of David and therefore the Messiah. So one of the themes is blindness. I know. What a surprise. (laughs) But I was thinking about this, and the first things that I was thinking about were, like, in Avatar, Toph Beifong is a character who's blind. And that is just treated as a characteristic, right? It is not compensated for, or nobody tries to cure Toph of being, Toph Beifong of blindness. Um, And Daredevil is also one. I'm less familiar with Daredevil, but the one that is, I think, really helpful, especially in light of our conversation, Beth, in the deep dive, is Poe, who is a Graceling in the Graceling books. And his grace is that he can, like, perceive the space around him, and particularly, like, he knows what people think of him. So he's kind of a mind reader. Um, And this is definite spoilers for Graceling, but not for the rest of the books. But And so he has this, like, ability to know, and then he gets in this accident and falls from a really high height and falls, like, face first into the water and goes blind. And graces, like, still develop up until, like, 25 years old. So his grace is still developing and has been developing throughout the book to be more expansive where he can perceive more of what's around him, like the animals that are hiding in the trees and that sort of thing. And so that when his, when he is made blind by the fall, um, they have to leave him behind. And then when they come back, they realize that he's like permanently blind. Um, But his grace has expanded so that instead of like trying to focus on all the things, he just lets it wash over him. And it basically compensates for his blindness, like basically completely. And Kristen Kishore, who wrote the Graceling series, actually in the next book, Bitter Blue, where Poe is, again, one of the characters in it, um, she actually talked about in her, like, author's notes or whatever, or acknowledgments, about being called out for the ableism in that trope of some a character becoming disabled and then having some magical cure or compensation for the disability. Like, that, that is a huge trope in fiction. And so she had already written the books, and the books were already, the book, the first book was already out. But in the second book, there was a piece that hadn't been clarified, and so that became part of the plot that, that actually, like, Poe's inability to see color at that point meant that he didn't realize something when he was trying to help or whatever. And so that was just this, like, beautiful space from my perspective of, like, doing something, falling into this really problematic trope, being called out on it, and adjusting to, like, acknowledging all of that and then also having that space to say, okay, and here's how we make it so that that trope isn't complete, even though I've already been this far down the road with it. Which I just, if you haven't read the Graceling series, you should. (laughs) Well, and I really appreciated how Avatar handled Toph's character, too, because 
yes, she's a very powerful earthbender. She can sort of see with her feet, as she puts it uh, occasionally, under most circumstances, but not all, uh, not on water, not on not as well on sand, uh, that kind of thing. But they do consistently recognize her blindness in that she can't read. Uh, she is always facing a different direction from everyone else. She doesn't do handshaking and stuff like that. And so I thought that they managed a, a fairly nuanced depiction yeah. there. Mm -hmm. So um, we have a children's book in my house. Like I said, I have little kids. And this book is called Melanie. And I can't remember the author's name. But the main character of the book is a girl named Melanie. And Melanie is blind. Um, and Melanie lives with her grandfather. Ooh. And they uh, raise sheep. And, um, you know, she knows the pasture and she knows the sheep and um, she knows how to like weave and, and spin to make yarn to sell. And the... anyway, um, grandfather one day learns that there's some like magic person who can cure things. And so he sets off with all the gold that they have accumulated to go and find this healer to heal Melanie of her blindness. And he's gone for like weeks and she realizes that he's not something's gone wrong. And so she sets out to find him and she like gets lost in the woods. And um, she comes finally to the troll bridge that grandfather needed to mm -hmm. pass in order to get to where this supposed healer was. And the troll bridge is surrounded by seagulls um, and the seagulls try and convince her not to, you know, cross the bridge. They're like pecking at her and trying to pull her back, but she just keeps going. Um, and the troll comes out and the troll declares like, Oh, good. Yet another person to be caught in my bridge for everyone who sees my face and is frightened by it, then is transformed into a seagull. Um, Melanie does not see his face because she is so blind. Right. Weird. And so she winds up like she and the troll like are in this like wrestle and the troll is enraged because it's not working. And the troll falls off the bridge and like drowns, you know, in the, Right. And in, in the death of the troll, everyone is released from the seagull problem. And there's all of these people who are suddenly people again. Mm -hmm. And grandfather is so sorry, like that he's failed Melanie. And Melanie's like, it's the dumbest thing you've ever said. Right. Like, I got to come and free <laughs> you and all of these people. Because only someone who cannot see the ugliness of the troll with the magic power to you know, frightened people by the way he looks could have done this. And so they go home and go back to the life that they had because it was a really good one, right? It didn't need to be yeah. fixed. That's awesome. That's, I yeah. Googled it real quick. It's Melanie by Carol Carrick. That sounds right. Yeah. I really enjoy the art and just the whole story of it. So highly recommend for grownups yeah. or children. I frequently tell people that I, part of being a good pastor is having a really solid children's library. So... I think, and you can extrapolate to any vocation that you have. I think everyone should have a good children's book collection. <laughs> oh, my mom was an academic advisor at a university, and she had a whole collection of little wind-up toys that the the children of the students she saw could play with yep. uh, during their oh, readings. Fun. That's so awesome. That was her version. That's awesome. Yeah. And in verse 51, when Jesus says to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to Jesus, my teacher, let me see again. And I love that space of, as we talked about earlier, check in consent, right? What, what do you want me to do? And my favorite example of checking consent is in Frozen. 
the first Frozen movie when Anna and Kristoff kiss. It starts out and it comes from specifically Kristoff is like, I could kiss you. Well, I mean, I want to. Do you? Should we? Uh, and it's like super awkward, <laughs> but it is actually like seeking consent for a kiss. Mm-hmm. And that I think is the first time I've ever seen that in a Disney movie, particularly given that most Disney movies, the kiss is like while the person is unconscious. <laughs> yeah. 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 So much unconsciousness. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that we could probably do a tally checklist of number of times kissed unconscious versus number of, like, troll murders or something (laughs) for children's stories, and that would be... (laughs) They would probably be close to tied. I don't know. I think kisses might be more, but... And then in verse 52, we read, Immediately Bartimaeus regained his sight and followed Jesus on the way. And so one of the many inborn assumptions that a lot of people seem to have that I've bumped into here and there is that any given person only has one disability at a time, which is absolutely not true. (laughs) And I kind of wonder what if part of why Jesus asked this question that he did was because Bartimaeus had more than one disability. What if Bartimaeus was both blind and, say, had ADHD, but appreciated some aspects of the ADHD and wanted to keep it? Or maybe he had another physical disability. Maybe he only had one arm. And so we know that he can walk and hear and spring up because we uh, read that he does this in the story. But that's about it for limits. So he could have had literally any other disability. And he was fine with that, but he really did want to see. So that's why Jesus asked. Hmm. That's, I was thinking about it, and one of my questions for my blog was around, like, what would have happened if Bartimaeus had said, I would like a job, or I would like society to make things that are more accessible so that there are not bridges over water that don't have railings that I could fall off of. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I what if I lived in a community that actually appreciated me as a person? Hmm. What? Yeah. Whole different story. Literally. <laughs> So, Beth, any other thoughts on life, the universe, and everything? I don't think that I have anything to add to this conversation. It has been really delightful to to think and share and stretch my mind with you two. So thanks for the invitation. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining us. It has been great to have you on the podcast. And thanks for joining us to our listeners as well. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost. This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at N-E-R-D-S-A-T-C-H-U-R-C-H. Or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our full guest episodes and interviews, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. We hope Patreon can help us get our episodes transcribed for those who need or prefer that. Though if you want to help us with transcripts, let us know via email or social media. As the ancient Christian said, Pox Pox Vobiscum. Vobiscum.